And I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. And if you're wondering why we're going backwards, if, you're, uh, if you've been here, you know that we've been uh, preaching through the book of Romans, and we are in Romans 5. But uh, several weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, when we were in Romans 4, I, I mentioned something, and I, I have to learn I have to be careful what I say, because people are going to hold me to it. So if, uh, several weeks ago, I just made a little comment that uh, as I was, we were in Romans 4, I had just a little, a little thought brewing about uh, one of those small chunks of text and how it might relate to infant baptism. And, and so some of you have asked me about that since, and I thought, oh yeah, I guess I did say that, didn't I? And uh, this, uh, since this, this past week was a little bit of a shortened week for me, so I didn't have enough time as I usually would to do an in-depth study of the next chunk of text in Romans, I thought it would be a good opportunity to go back to do and to follow through with what I had said and uh, to go back to Romans 4, verses 9 to 12 and give just a little teaching this morning on, on how I went from, got from there to the our, our theology and practice of infant baptism. So that's kind of what I'm doing this morning. Um, it's not a sermon, it's a teaching. And uh, so if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 4, verses 9 to 12. And before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. As Let's bow together uh, as we go to Him in prayer. Lord God, we praise You for who You are. We praise you, Lord, for giving us your word. We praise you for how you have revealed yourself, O Lord, to us through these holy pages and holy words of Scripture. I pray now, Lord, that as we explore uh, this text and and how it uh, ties and and leads and, and might connect, Lord, to circumcision and infant baptism and the covenant of grace, I pray that you would uh, give us open ears and hearts and minds and I pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, speak to us, and I pray above all, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored as we uh, study what, how you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so I just pray for your anointing on our time together. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, speak to us as you would, uh, that I would be a, a faithful servant this morning to say nothing less and nothing more than what you would have me to say. So, Lord, uh, we come before you under the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And I'll say a little bit more about this in in the uh, beginning of the message, but again, this is not a... I'm not preaching on this text. We've already preached, uh, on, covered this portion of text in, in preaching. Uh, Pastor Ben uh, did that, so this is not... Uh, Revisiting and, and uh, uh, you know preaching through that text again. That's not what what we're doing. Uh, rather, using this as sort of a, a launching pad um, for uh, a, a teaching. And so uh, that's the the goal, the plan this morning. Romans four verses nine through twelve. Paul has been talking here about how Abraham was justified by faith. That's been sort of the the, the center of his argument in Romans chapter four. And he says, uh, he had just got done saying that, uh, uh, quoting the, uh, the Old Testament, saying, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And he says in Romans uh, 4, verse 9, is this blessedness, this blessedness uh, that he just was uh, referencing, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. The focus, is, by, the, by the way, is on that verse 11, as you will see. Then Paul uh, goes on in verse 12 to say, And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You may be seated. So as we uh, enter into this, this, this topic of circumcision and, and baptism, I want to begin this morning by offering just what I would call some, some opening statements, uh, just to kind of be clear right up front about what I am and what I am not trying to accomplish this morning. So, so first, I want to make it clear that this is, again, this is not an expository sermon of this text. Now, if you're not exactly sure what, what expository preaching is, I'll give you a very simple definition. Uh, expository preaching is preaching that explains and applies the meaning of a biblical text in a way that is faithful to the original intent of the biblical author. That is a very concise and simple, I think, straightforward definition of what we mean uh, of what expository preaching really is. So expository preaching takes pains to, to draw out what a biblical text says and means in its literary, historical, grammatical context, and then it applies, it takes the, the main idea uh, that the original author was intending to convey, and it applies that main idea to the lives of hearers for our good and for God's glory. That's expository preaching. It is preaching that privileges the text, that allows the text to speak for itself, what God intended that text to say to us as his people. That is expository preaching. That's the kind of preaching that I feel called and compelled and, and passionate about doing week after week, but that is not what I'm doing this morning. So if you're expecting you know, to explain the meaning of this text, I'm telling you up front that's not what I'm doing. So don't come to me afterwards and say, hey, I don't think that's what this text was saying. You're right. Okay. What I am attempting to do this morning is to provide a teaching that is loosely tied to this text, but it is not an exposition of the text. I don't like to do that often, like I said, because I, my preference is, is uh, to study a text and then feed it to you. So my second opening statement is that this is not a comprehensive teaching on circumcision and infant baptism. I, I couldn't possibly cover the multitude and the complexity of issues surrounding this, surrounding this topic in a single message. There have been entire books written about uh, each of these topics. So my teaching on this topic will be a limited teaching that focuses on sort of a couple of major threads within the larger tapestry of the topic. My third opening statement is that this is not a dogmatic defense of infant baptism. If you have talked with me about this issue before, you know that I have no interest in being dogmatic about this issue. Um, in fact, I, 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 I have a very, um, I'm very open to, to the other, to believer baptism. And so uh, part of my aim is to foster a spirit of unity among those who have differing views of baptism. That's part of my, my goal. I have no interest. I don't want to uh, present a dogmatic defense of infant baptism this morning. 
There are some within our church family uh, who passionately embrace believers-only baptism, and there are some within our church family who passionately embrace infant baptism. And I believe, and I would say this, make this clear up front, I believe that both positions have a solid and a robust biblical basis. That both positions, I believe, are firmly rooted in the soil of sound hermeneutics. And so this is one of those issues where we can have differing opinions and differing viewpoints without in any way hindering our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I should also say that I don't feel like we have sort of, you know, tension or division around this issue within our church family. I'm thankful for that. Um, but I don't want to do, do anything that would, that would create that. I want to continue to, to foster and to build that spirit of unity. So my intent in, this, in providing this teaching is not to show that one view is right and the other view is wrong. That's not at all what I'm doing this morning. My intent is simply to present one thread of a biblical theological rationale for the practice of infant baptism. And maybe... For some of those who are believers, only baptism to clarify some things along the way for those who might question the practice. And in so doing, my larger hope and aim, like I said, is to foster a spirit of unity and harmony within our church family. So that's what I, I hope to do through this teaching this morning. Several years ago, I, uh, I watched a debate, and I know some of you have seen this debate as well. It was a debate between uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur on this issue of baptism. So R.C. Sproul was defending the side of infant baptism and, and John MacArthur was defending the side of believer-only baptism. And so these, these two men, these really sort of theological giants, uh, had a deep and abiding respect for each other and a deep and abiding friendship as, as fellow believers and fellow brothers in Christ and fellow co-workers and partners in the gospel. And so the debate was a friendly debate that, that illustrated how we can disagree on this particular issue while remaining deeply united uh, through our common faith in Christ. Uh, if you haven't seen that debate, I invite you, encourage you to, to, to look it up and, and to watch it. It's that same spirit of unity and, and mutual respect that I want us to have and I hope to, to contribute to through the message this morning. So... With these opening statements in mind, let me just take you through what I, th I think is sort of my, my uh, train of thought from this text to infant baptism. So what I think is a logical progression of thought from the, this, this passage in Romans 4 to the practice of infant baptism. So we can begin by, by saying, and this is really where, where I began, the thing that kind of jumped out to me that I hadn't really noticed before and the thing that kind of got all this started in my own study. So we can begin by saying that there are two layers of meaning to circumcision. In Romans 4, like I mentioned, Paul is making the point that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And he says that God credited righteousness to Abraham on the basis of his faith. And then he ties this to circumcision in verse 10. Where he says, under what circumstances was this righteousness credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And then he makes this significant statement in verse 11, which, is, like I said, is really the focus. So Paul says, and, and Abraham received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, that, that is a, a very significant statement. Because Paul is clearly saying that for Abraham, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes through faith. Which 
this triggers something in our minds because that's, that sounds a lot like baptism, like, like what we celebrate in believe, believer baptism, doesn't it? So, so based on this text, then one of, the, one of the layers of meaning to circumcision is that it is a sign and seal of faith. Or to be more specific, it is a sign and seal of the righteousness attained through faith. Like I said, that is a really significant observation. Because we, we know from the, so that's, that's the one layer of meaning that we see here in Romans 4, is that, that, it, that circumcision can be, and for Abraham was, a sign and seal of the righteousness he attained through faith. Now we know from the rest of the Old Testament that there is another layer of meaning, and probably I would say a, a primary me, layer of meaning to circumcision. So it's not only a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes through faith, but it's also a sign and seal of covenant inclusion, right? So that's, that's, we are more familiar probably with that aspect of circumcision. We see it clearly in Genesis 17, uh, when God entered into a covenant relationship uh, with Abraham, he commanded that Abraham and his descendants be circumcised. So God said, to Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are, to under, you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So, there, so it was, uh, as Paul says, for Abraham, a sign and seal of the righteousness he had through faith, but also a sign and seal of covenant inclusion for Abraham himself. And then he says, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, whether born in your household or bought with your money from a foreigner, they must be circumcised. So the circumcision that God commanded here in Genesis 17 was a sign and seal of covenant inclusion. For those who were only eight days old, it was not a sign and seal of the righteousness they had by faith because they were not of an age to demonstrate any kind of faith. And so we see then these two layers of meaning uh, to the practice, to the one practice of circumcision. It was a sign and seal of covenant inclusion uh, but for those who had faith like Abraham, it was also a sign and seal of the righteousness that they had through faith. Now, this, like I said, this is important because we carry forward these same two layers of meaning in our practice of baptism. When we baptize adult believers, and, and some of you have, maybe have some misunderstanding about that, we do, bap- we do baptize adult believers. We delight in doing that. We love doing that. Uh, when, when we baptize adult believers, the water of baptism is a sign of the righteousness they have through faith in Christ. It is a beautiful expression of their dying to the old self and rising to new life in Christ. And we, we, like I said, we, we love to do that, and we love the symbolism that that conveys. But when we baptize infants, the water of baptism, the same water of baptism is a sign of covenant inclusion. And we'll say a little bit more about what it's not later on. But it is a beautiful expression of the fact that they belong to the community that belongs to God. And so just as the one practice of circumcision conveyed these two layers of meaning, so too our one practice of baptism conveys these same two layers of meaning. That's the first, sort of the first stop on this train of thought. Which brings us then to the second stop on the train of thought, which is that there is a connection between circumcision and baptism. Now, granted, there is no verse in the New Testament that says that that, uh, baptism is to be the replacement of the old covenant practice of circumcision. There's no no place in the Bible that says, hear ye, hear ye. Everybody understand that that, uh, baptism is to replace 
circumcision in the Old Testament. There's, you're not going to find that anywhere. But there is a connection. Uh, one of the places we see the connection is in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 12, where Paul says, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, Paul makes the connection here between circumcision and baptism. Now, let me say, he's not talking about the physical acts of circumcision and baptism. He's talking about the spiritual realities that these acts signify. Right? So he's not saying that Christ physically circumcised. Obviously, that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the spiritual realities. But what is significant is that he is essentially equating the two. That the, the spiritual reality of being circumcised by Christ is, according to Paul, the same as the spiritual reality of being buried with Christ in baptism. Both expressions are referring to the same spiritual reality of dying to the old self and being given new life in Christ. So for Paul, the, the point of contact between circumcision and baptism is, is Christ. To be united with Christ is, in Paul's language, to be circumcised by Christ, which is to put off the old self and its sinful nature, which is symbolized in baptism. And so the singular reality at the heart of it all is union with Christ. And as we will see later on, both circumcision and baptism are signs that point to Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And so from a redemptive historical perspective, circumcision points, uh, points ahead to the cross and baptism looks back to the cross. And so both of them are bound together by the same spiritual reality. Now, there is, there is more that we could say about this uh, point and about this text, but for now, the important point is that Paul makes a connection between circumcision and baptism, and in Paul's use of the terms here in Colossians 2, they are basically interchangeable. That brings us then to our third stop on this train of thought, and that is that there is continuity between the Old and New Covenants. Now, this really gets to the heart of the issue and the debate between infant baptism and believer-only baptism. Much of the disagreement revolves around the, the nature of the relationship between the covenants. Now, on, on both sides of the debate, uh, many, maybe most, especially if, they're, if you're of Reformed persuasion, so there's Reformed Baptists, then there's Reformed, uh, those who practice uh, infant baptism who are in the Reformed camp. And so pretty much most of those, maybe almost all of those within those two camps on both sides of the debate uh, agree that the idea of covenant is central to the biblical story. And many also agree, most, I would say, also agree that throughout the biblical story, there is really one overarching covenant of grace, which is unveiled in these sort of successive installments, each one building on the one that came before. So when you read the Bible, you read about these various covenants that God makes with people throughout uh, the biblical revelation, throughout redemption history. And, but they're not all sort of isolated individual covenants. They are all sort of successive chapters in the one story of redemption. If you want a picture, you can imagine it or picture it something like this. You, don't, you can kind of ignore a lot of the words there just kind of uh, 
focus on more, more the, the visual concept here. So to, to put it in oversimplified terms, this, this one covenant of grace was announced to Adam, was reiterated to Noah, was then established with Abraham, and, and then administered provisionally under Moses, carried forward by David, and fully then fully realized in Christ. And like I said, each one, there, something is, is built on the one that, that came before. So through these covenants, which are really successive installments, successive chapters in the one covenant of grace, God carried out his plan of redemption and fulfilled his gracious purpose to have a people in his kingdom forever. And so the idea of covenant lies at the heart of biblical revelation. And, and, and really, I mean, you begin to see what, what a, what is a central and dominating concept and biblical theme covenant really is. Uh, it is uh, covenant is really is, is God's primary vehicle through which he carries out his redemption plan, through which he, he uh, gathers and, 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 uh, and, and draws a people to himself to have in his kingdom forever. And so the idea of covenant lies at the heart of biblical revelation. God's covenant of grace unifies all of Scripture. We, we can read all of Scripture through that covenant lens. And it is central to our self-understanding as Christians. The, the, the God we worship is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And we are his covenant people. And covenant just really means that God has bound himself to us. It is a binding relationship. Uh, and that's, that's what we see all throughout Scripture, that God has bound himself to his people and is faithful to his covenant promises. So again, many, maybe most on both sides of the baptism debate would agree with all of this so far. Where the main point of disagreement lies is in the constitution of the covenant community. Now this gets a little bit, so if you're still with me, Again, you know, it, this gets a little bit technical, and I, I had cut this whole section out, and then I brought it back in, all right? So, just, you know, bear with me a little bit. I, I, think we can, I, think, I think we can handle it. So, so far, everybody agrees. Almost everybody agrees, you know, that the covenant of grace is central to the biblical story. Where the main point of disagreement lies in the debate between infant baptism and believer's baptism is in the constitution of the covenant community. So those who object to infant baptism say that there's a fundamental difference in the way that the, that the new covenant community is, is constituted compared to the, the way the old covenant community was constituted. They say that under the old covenant, you belonged to the covenant community on the basis of ethnicity, right? So to the, the people of the covenant in, in the Old Testament were the ethnic Israelites, but in the new covenant, the, you belong to the, the, to the new covenant community on the basis of faith in Christ, and therefore, they say, while it was fitting to mark children as belonging to the covenant community under the old covenant, it's no longer fitting to mark children as belonging to the covenant community under the new covenant. Because under the old covenant, it was on the basis of ethnicity, and the new covenant is on the basis of faith. Now, let me just say, there's validity to that argument. All right, again, I'm not, I, don't, I have no interest in being dogmatic. I, I could maybe present a, another message of presenting the biblical rationale for believer-only baptism, and I would feel comfortable doing that as well. There's validity to that argument. 
And I would agree that there is a difference in the way that the new covenant community is constituted compared to the old. But I would also say that this difference is not as nearly as neat and tidy as many suggest. Under the old covenant, some foreigners were marked as belonging to the, to the covenant community, weren't they? And in the new covenant community, there are some professing believers who aren't true believers, who don't have a true faith. And so it's not entirely accurate to say that the old covenant community was constituted purely on the basis of ethnicity and that the new covenant community is constituted purely on the basis of faith. And in the end, I don't think that this difference in constitution necessitates the exclusion of children. So I think, that, I think the same dynamic, the same nature of, of, of the covenant community carries over from the old into the new. I think that there's, there's, there's continuity there, which is consistent with the way God has revealed himself throughout redemption history. There's, there's always a, a pattern, and he doesn't just abandon the old and start to do something brand new. He, there's, there's continuity from the old into the new. Let me give you a picture that I think hopefully will help uh, show or clarify some of these these things in the old covenant community, which we can uh, see in the, the blue circle, the blue sphere, uh, that represents the, the, the old, the, the covenant community under the old covenant, right? And there were people who belonged to the covenant community and notice that they were, you know, it was mainly ethnic Israel, but there were also some foreigners who were part of that covenant community. But notice that, that in that, that blue circle, as we know from reading scripture, uh, that there were some who belonged to the, to the blue part, who were, who were part of the, who were, were, were associated with, belonged to the covenant community, but who were not true God honorers. Right? We know that, that they, there were some within that covenant community who did not end up in the kingdom of God, some who rejected God, who were stubborn and hard-hearted, but they were yet part of that covenant community. And so God, we see throughout, uh, throughout Scripture how God always preserved a, a remnant. There was this, within that, that larger covenant community, there was that little yellow circle, that, that remnant of true God honors, those, those who were truly committed and devoted to God, the true Israel. Including, and again, this, this, that, that yellow community included some ethnic uh, Israelites, mainly ethnic Israelites, and also some foreigners. Again, so there's, that's the way the old covenant community was constituted. But in the new covenant community, we, we, we see that the same, or at least a very similar dynamic exists. So when we go over to the new covenant community uh, of the church, we see, again, the, the, new, co- the new covenant community is represented by the, the blue sphere, the blue circle. And in that new covenant community of the church, there are uh, professing believers who belong to the church but are not true believers. Right? So there is that same kind of dynamic within. The, there are those who, are, who belong to the church, who would associate with the church, who profess to be followers and believers of Christ, but they don't have a true faith. And so they're not true believers. There is, again, within the, the, the broader uh, sphere of the church, those who belong to the church, those who are associated with the church, there is the yellow sphere of true believers, the true elect. And so, again, there's that same kind of dynamic. It's not the case that, that everybody who, who belongs to the church is a pure, true believer. The New Testament makes this very clear. Uh, Jesus himself said... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying that there are people who, who identify themselves as, as being followers of Christ, as belonging to the church, but they're not true believers. Jesus himself says that they will not enter my kingdom. 
Jesus said in John 15 that he was the true vine, and the true vine is a reference to true Israel. He says, I, he says, I am the true vine, and my father, the Father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, what does that mean? It means that it's possible to be in Christ in an outward sense by being part of the covenant community of the church, but not to be in Christ in a truly salvific sense. We see the same thing throughout much of the letters. And in, in John's letters, he talks a lot about those who are part of the fellowship of believers, those who are part of the community of the church, but who, held, who had heretical, false teaching kinds of views, and so therefore were not true believers. And so again, this, this, the way that the new covenant community is constituted is very similar, at least in, in its makeup and what it looks like. That same dynamic, that same dynamic exists in the new covenant community as did in the old so by God's design, there is continuity between the old covenant community and the new covenant community in that in both cases, the community consists of true and false followers, true and false uh, people who would associate themselves with God. And it won't be until we are gathered together on the new earth with our resurrected bodies and our resurrected Lord that the, that the covenant community will finally be a pure community as we read in Revelation 21, consisting only of true believers, those who have been marked and sealed uh, as belonging to God. And until that time, until that time when the covenant community is only true believers, until that time we admit to the church professing believers who may or may not be true believers, right? Because we, we, we don't know. We're not, if somebody comes and says, I'm only part of the church, they profess faith in Christ, we're not going to, we, we admit them because only God knows if they are truly chosen, truly elect or not. And so I believe it is reasonable and consistent with the covenantal pattern to admit to the church also children of believers who may or may not grow up to be true believers. And in so doing, as Liam Gallagher said, we bring up our children in faith that they will become Christians rather than in the fear that they will not. Now, that is sort of my train of thought. Hopefully, hopefully it's logical from Romans 4 to our theology and practice of infant baptism. Like I said, there's a lot more we could say. There's, I'm sure there's questions. I'd be happy to, to talk some more. I'm not going to cover everything in a single message. But in the time that we have left this morning, what I want to do is to sort of pull some of these threads together and leave you with five concluding considerations. And we'll go through these pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, first, a, a word to believing parents with babies. If you are a believing parent and you have a baby or if you are expecting to, to have a baby at some point down the road, then I, I encourage you to, to prayerfully consider having them baptized. Uh, there, there's, I, I want you to see, one of the things I hope to, to, to come out of our teaching time this morning is to see that there's nothing wacky or weird about it, right? There, it's not like a, we're not like some other churches or denominations that, that say a child is saved through baptism. Our baptism has nothing to do with that. It doesn't have, there's nowhere near that kind of false teaching about baptism. The baptism we practice and teach is not a regenerative baptism, it's not a baptism that guarantees salvation. We agree and celebrate that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So 
We baptize infants as a sign of covenant inclusion, marking them as belonging to the community that belongs to God. And we celebrate the fact that the child baptized will then grow up under the umbrella of God's covenant blessings. What a rich and beautiful thing that is with a, with the, to have a church family that, that will pray for that child and instruct that child in the truths of God's word and, and guide that child and, and nurture that child in the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. There are, are huge benefits and blessings from a child growing up under the umbrella of God's covenant blessings and promises. Number two, a word to those who embrace believer-only baptism. If you are of the persuasion of believer-only baptism, I want you to know, and, and some of you who have talked with me already know this, but I want to, to say it and I want you to know again that I have a deep and abiding respect for that position. Uh, I get it. I have absolutely no qualms about it whatsoever. I might even say that I resonate with it on, depending on what day of the week you talk with me, I might even say that I lean more in that direction. I see the biblical rationale behind it. But I hope that, that you also, and maybe if you didn't before, maybe one of the things I would hope from our time together this morning is that I hope that you also can see the biblical theological rationale behind our practice of infant baptism, even if you don't agree with it. So I want you to see that, that we're not just sort of blindly clinging to, to ancient but outdated practice. That our position is not a Neanderthal position any more than your position is, 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 a, is a baby-hating position. And so, we, you know, together we can all just get along and, and have deep fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, a word to believers who have not been baptized. If you have come to faith in Christ and have never been baptized, then I encourage you to take the next step to get baptized. I think of the, that, that powerful scene in Acts chapter 8 when, when, uh, Philip, when Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit and went out to, to share the gospel message and he came to the Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling along in a, in a chariot along the side of the road after worshiping in, in Jerusalem. And, and so he's in, in this chariot and he's reading the, the book of the, the prophet Isaiah and he doesn't understand what the words mean, right? Do you remember that, that, that scene in that story? And he's reading Isaiah, from Isaiah 53, where the, the, probably the, the classic, the, the, most, uh, the most Christ-centered uh, text in, in, in almost the whole Old Testament. He's reading that, and he's like, well, who is this talking about? I don't get it. I don't understand. And, and the Holy Spirit sent Philip there to say, oh, it's, it's Jesus. And he shared the gospel message with him, and, and he believed and so then Philip gets up in the chariot with him and they're driving along. And what did the Ethiopian do? The first little puddle of water he sees on the side of the road, he says, what can prevent me from going down and getting baptized? I, I, I don't want to go. There's no need to delay it any longer. I, I want to do this. Can we do it right now? I don't have to tell my friends. I don't have to go back to my family. I don't even have to make it home. There's water right here. Why should I not be baptized? If you're a believer who's never been baptized, might you have that same attitude and desire? And it would be our joy and delight to baptize you as a believer, as a sign and a seal of your entrance into the new covenant community, and as a sign and a seal of your righteousness and new life through faith in Christ. We will bring in a tank. We'll bring in a pool. We'll do something. We don't, and we're not going to fit you in, in that, and so we'll have to do something a little bit different, or we'll you know, cut a hole in the ice and bring you out to Lake Winnebago. Whatever it takes, we will, we will be delighted to do an adult baptism. 
or not even necessarily adults, a, a baptism for if you have come to faith in Christ, regardless of your age. Number four, a word to believers who have been baptized but have not publicly professed their faith. So if you have come to faith in Christ and you've been baptized as an infant, uh, but you have not yet made your public profession of faith, then I encourage you to take that next step of publicly professing your faith if you haven't already done so. What, what a joy it is to see children who have grown up under the umbrella of God's, of God's covenant blessings and promises to receive those promises in faith. When you publicly profess your faith, you are celebrating what God has done in you and how he has drawn you to himself and how he has called you and, and made you his own. And, and you are declaring your allegiance to Christ and your commitment to live as one set apart for him. And man, what a, how, how much is that needed in our world today to, to say, I am going to live for Christ. Christ has, 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 has drawn me to himself, and I, I'm wholeheartedly committed and devoted to him, and so I'm, I'm not going to conform to the pattern of the world. I'm going to live for him all of my days. What a joy to make that step. We have, like I mentioned, the announcements of profession of faith class coming up, and if you are roughly the age of 12 or older. There's no like set in stone there, but if you're roughly the age of 12 or older and have come to a faith in Christ and have never been baptized or you have been baptized as an infant, and I strongly encourage you to participate in that class. And if you have never been baptized and go through that class and want to take that step, then we would baptize you. And if you have been baptized as an infant and, and, and want to take that step, then we would celebrate that through a public ceremony, a public profession of faith. And finally, number, number five. As we prepare for communion, a word about how the signs of circumcision and baptism point us to the cross. Under the old covenant, of course, circumcision was a bloody act. It involved cutting off a part of the body. And so there is this, this, this cutting aspect to it. And in fact, in the Old Testament, the very language of, of making a covenant was literally to, to cut a covenant. And so to be circumcised was to be included in God's covenant community and to be cut off or set apart from the world. Again, there's that, that, that cutting, that cutting off, that cutting away uh, imagery is, is, is central to, to, the, to the sign of circumcision. And, and implied in that act of circumcision was the idea that if you did not keep the covenant, you would be cut off from God and his covenant blessings. Now, here's a problem. We are by nature a covenant-breaking people. Now, the good news is that God is by nature a gracious, covenant-keeping God. And so he provided a way for us to be counted as covenant keepers, even though we are by nature covenant breakers. He provided the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself the curse of our covenant-breaking. At the cross, he endured the, the agony of being cut off from the Father in our place. Which is why the, the prophet Isaiah said he was oppressed and afflicted. He was punished by God, cut off from the land of the living. That, that's the language of, of, of the, the curse of covenant breaking. He was cut off from the land of the living. As Paul said to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And as Jesus himself said on the cross in language, again, that echoes that, that cursedness of being a covenant breaker, who stood in, though he was not himself, of course, a covenant breaker at all, but taking upon himself our covenant breaking ways, he expressed that language of being cursed for being a covenant breaker when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So circumcision is a sign that points ahead to the cross and baptism a sign that looks back at the cross. And in both We celebrate what God has graciously done for us, taking upon himself the curse of covenant breaking that we deserve and giving us the status of covenant keeping righteousness that Christ alone has earned. And so as we come to the table this morning, let us remember and celebrate the one in whom these signs are fulfilled, the one who became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O Lord, that you would work within us a, a deep gratitude and wonder for what you have done for us through Christ on the cross. Lord, how he took upon himself the punishment that our sin and our covenant-breaking ways deserved, that he endured in our place the agony of of being cursed, of enduring the the cursedness of covenant breaking so that we might be considered as those who are truly righteous covenant keepers. Lord, speak to us, I pray, and prepare our hearts now as we come before your throne in silent prayer. Lord Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah said so many years ago, you were pierced for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on you. And by your wounds, we are healed. Lord, we all, like sheep, 
have gone astray. We all, like the covenant breakers that we are, have turned to our own way. And yet the Lord laid on you the iniquity of us all. You were oppressed. You were afflicted. Yet you did not open your mouth. You were led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so you did not open your mouth. By oppression and by judgment, taking upon yourself the judgment that we deserved, you were taken away, cut off from the land of the living. For our transgressions, you were punished. Oh Lord, as we come to the table of communion this morning, I pray that you would fill us with a wonder and praise and gratitude for what you have done for us. And may we, O oh Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, live as your covenant-keeping people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.